Hello, and welcome to First Importance, the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer today is that you will be blessed and encouraged by the message to come. Well, this is near Thanksgiving time, and uh, and uh, Wednesday before the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving just a little over a week uh, off, and so I thought... I'd use a passage about Thanksgiving. It's a passage that I am sure that I have used before in various uh, times I've had the opportunity to preach to this congregation. In fact, I look back on some of my records and I preached from this text 31 years ago. And I'm sure most of you remember that. Uh, it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul's Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. Now, I've made this observation more than once in my Sunday school class, in the auditorium class, as well as other times, that Paul gave thanks to every church he wrote to, except one. You read the letters of Paul. Well, if you count the book of Hebrews as Paul's letters, which I do, there are two letters that he doesn't have a word of thanksgiving in the beginning. One is in the book of Galatians. And Galatians was such a terrible thing going on in the life of the Galatians that he didn't stop to give thanks for the Galatians. But in other places, even that church at Corinth, Corinth was a very problematic church, but Paul had occasion to give thanks for the Corinthian believers at the church at Corinth. But one of the favorite uh, thanksgivings that, uh, of mine in Paul's letters is found in 1 Thessalonians. There's a rather lengthy section. In fact, almost the whole chapter, chapter 1, is devoted to Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. And so I want to deal with that uh, this evening. Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. You know, when you look at this thanksgiving, and really it's pretty uh, true of the rest of the thanksgivings of Paul, most of the time, whenever we are giving thanks, we think about material things, we think about personal health, we think about the blessings of God, uh, which all, we ought to all give thanks for. In fact, I have a little sermon on the ten lepers that were healed by Jesus, and only one of them came back to give thanks. And I call this the rarity of thanksgiving. Uh, but uh, they had to, they gave thanks. The man that turned gave thanks for his personal healing from that terrible disease of leprosy. And so personal health, uh, healings, uh, God's blessings in that fashion are certainly occasions for giving thanks. But when Paul sought to give thanks for the Thessalonians, he thought about them. And so as we look at this, there's a lot of things I could say about this passage. In fact, uh, if you look at the thanksgivings in Paul's letters, there's a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine found in those, uh, uh, in those uh, passages on Thanksgiving. But I want to call attention to two things in this passage on Thanksgiving and has to do with the reasons why Paul gave thanks for the Thessalonians. Now the statement of thanks is found in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. The occasion for him giving thanks for the Thessalonians is when he prayed. And then he states the reason why he gave thanks for the Thessalonians. There are two, uh, uh, the two phrases 
two participle phrases found in this passage that gives the reasons. One is in verse 3. He thanked God for the Thessalonians remembering certain Christian virtues in their lives. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and the Father. There are three virtues that Paul mentions that he remembered that was expressed in the lives of those Thessalonians. The one is the work of faith. Now if you'll note, the three virtues are faith and love and hope. But there's something associated with each of these virtues that they produced in their lives. He says, I thank God for your work of faith. Now, genuine faith always produces some kind of works, some kind of good works. In fact, James deals with false faith and true faith. And, and one, uh, one characteristic of true faith is that it produces works. Now, we know that salvation is by faith alone. Uh, we're saved by faith, by grace, through faith. And uh, justification by faith is a great Bible doctrine. But we must not have such a view of faith that it has no evidence in it. And Paul says, I thank God that the faith I saw in you produced works. So we thank God for their work of faith or for their faith that produced works. And then he says, I thank God for your labor of love. The love that they had produced labor. Now faith will produce works. There's a difference between works and labor. Labor calls attention to the, to the toil, to the hardship, to the perspiration that's found in, in work. And so faith may produce works, but only love can cause a person to endure labor for someone else. And that was the kind of love that he saw in these Thessalonians. And then he says, I thank God for your patience of hope. That is the hope that they had. Always looks to the future. But it's a promise of the future. That things are going to get brighter. Things out there in the future. However, however dark it may look now. It may seem now. There's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I've often heard someone say that, uh, that a person can endure almost anything. If there's hope. And I believe that. I think I've made this statement before. The most successful diet. That I ever went on. Was almost starving myself to death. From Monday through Friday. Now I was out in churches on the weekend. Nearly every weekend somewhere. In somebody's home. And it was a great temptation. you know. So what I did. I nearly starved myself to death. From Monday through Friday noon. And by Friday evening. Going through Sunday evening. I ate everything that I could get my hands on. <laughs> but you know what? I would lose four pounds. From Monday through Friday noon. And gain three of them back. On the weekend. But I lost one pound a week. Now that, that hope, that hope I had for the weekend caused me to endure whatever hardship I had from Monday through Friday noon. And so this is the kind of hope that they had. They had a hope that produced patience in their lives. And so when Paul gave thanks, he remembered their work of faith, their labor of love, and their hope that produced patience. And so I want to ask this question. Does anybody have reason 
to give thanks for you because you have a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that produces patience in your life. And not only that, but do you know of somebody for whom you ought to give thanks because they have a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that has produced patience of endurance in their life. And so Paul gave thanks remembering their work, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. But then he gave thanks for another reason. The second participle phrase is found in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. He gave thanks because of an inward assurance of their salvation. Now that thing always seemed interesting to me. You know, there's some people that don't believe you can be sure that you're saved. But here, Paul not only taught that, it's, that a person can have assurance of salvation, but your salvation can give other people some sense of assurance that you're saved. Knowing, brethren, your election of God. Now that word election scares some people to death. I just uh, advise you not to be scared when you find it's in the Bible. When I was in college a number of years ago, of course we got in bull sessions, uh, we students about certain doctrines, and, and uh, we got talking about election one time, and one fellow said, uh, well if I believe in election, I'd never preach. And I thought that was kind of stupid. I didn't know exactly what all the doctrine of election had to do with, but I knew the election was in the Bible. And so he said, I thank God for your election, God's election of you. And really, it tells us two things about salvation. Number one, it tells me that when God saved you, it was not what you have done, but what God has done for you. And it tells me that when you were saved, you didn't deserve to be saved, but God saved you regardless of your undeserving nature. But nevertheless, I want you to think of it in terms of salvation. Paul is really saying, thank God, remembering, knowing, brethren, you are saved. Now that's kind of strange, isn't it? You see, salvation is not only something you can be sure of, but it's something that other people can have some reasonable assurance that you are a Christian, that you have been saved. Obviously, obviously we can make mistakes along that line. In one sense, only God and you yourself knows whether you're saved, but you can give some evidence. There's some evidence that Paul talks about, about this matter of knowing, brethren, beloved of God, your election. There are two reasons why Paul could have that assurance of these Thessalonians. He could be sure because of his own experience as a preacher, as a carrier of the message of salvation. Uh, note when he says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God for our gospel. Now, he includes others, but he includes himself. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. He calls it our gospel. Now, if you look in Paul's writings, there are a number of expressions that are simply the gospel. There's the gospel of Christ. There's the gospel of God. And here it says our gospel. Now, when he mentions that personal pronoun, our gospel, that means he himself had experienced the same power that saved him. And if that gospel saved him, being 
the worst of sinners, he knew that it could save those Thessalonians. And so he could be sure of their salvation because he himself had experienced the salvation that came through the gospel. But not only that, but there's a certain manner of his preaching. And not only him, but the others that were with him. He says, our gospel came not unto you in word only. Now I want you to note that. He did not say that our gospel came not in word at all. I'm telling you, Christian friends, that the gospel must be verbalized. There's no way that people can just uh, assume uh, uh, by just looking at your life as to how to be saved. They may wonder about your salvation. They may be amazed about how you've been changed. But you've got to verbalize the gospel for people to hear. So he didn't say not in word at all. He says not in word only. There is a preaching of the gospel. And then there's preaching of the gospel. And those who've done very much of it know the difference. And Paul had that sense of assurance of the Holy Spirit in his life when he brought the gospel to these Thessalonians. He said it was not in word only. It was also in the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of the experience that he had as a messenger of the gospel, he had some assurance of the genuineness of the faith of these Thessalonians. But not only the experience of the preachers that gave him some assurance, but the response of the hearers is what gave him assurance of their salvation. How did they respond? Well, they respond they responded by receiving the word. Now if you'll note in in verse uh, in verse 6, and, he, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much assurance, in, in much affliction. The manner with which they received the word. It's interesting about the language of the New Testament, uh, the, the original language, the Greek language, and then the words that we choose to translate it into English. You read the English translation and you find the one word received. But in the Greek language, they had two words that we translate receive. One just has to do with uh, just acceptance. And the other has to do with welcoming. You know, you, uh, in your own personal life, uh, you have maybe a neighbor or friend or even a relative that comes knocking on your door and you receive them into your house. But you're not too pleased. You're not too happy that they're there. In fact, you hope they don't stay very long. But you've received them. And then there's that warm, receiving, warm welcome. I mean, you're glad that they're there. And you bring them into your home and your fellowship. And that's the word that used here in this text. It's not just simply they accepted the message, but they welcomed it in their lives. And the, the very manner with which they received the gospel gave Paul some assurance that it was a genuine expression of Christian faith in their lives. But not only the manner with which they received it, but the circumstances with which, in which they received it. You receive the word 
in much affliction. Now, if you read the account of taking the gospel to the Thessalonians in the book of Acts, you'll find persecution broke out. In fact, Paul had to leave the town for safety purposes. The Christians uh, really encouraged him to leave, not stay. And after he left, no doubt the persecution continued. Uh, the book of, of 2 Thessalonians, which deals with the coming of the Lord, uh, indicated that, uh, uh, that these Christians uh, wondered what's going to happen to those who've already died before the Lord comes back. And so he deals with that in Second Thessalonians, uh, or rather, instead of First Thessalonians, chapter four, uh, and he encouraged them not to mourn, not to mourn as others who have no hope. And he has that great section on the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And so there was great persecution, but yet they received the word despite the persecution. That they knew was going to take place after it was known that they were Christians. And that fact, dear Christian friends, gave much assurance to Paul that they were genuine in their faith. You know, I'm glad that we have the freedom we have here in this country. And that's one of the things we ought to be thankful for. Every Thanksgiving, every National Thanksgiving Day that we have, we ought to give occasion to give thanks to God led us and by His providence to be born and live in this kind of culture. But that it does have its drawbacks. You know, there, some, there, was, there was a day, and I'm not sure that it's passing now, but there was a day when it was advantageous for people to be identified as Christians and a member of a church. In fact, uh, back in my early days as a min uh, in the ministry, and it, as I said, it may be changing in our culture a little bit, but uh, uh, businessmen were encouraged to join a church uh, because it would help their business. And and and, and there's there's a there's a terrible temptation that can be uh, that the devil can use on this occasion. You never know. You can never know how sincere a person is who come to make a public profession of faith and identify with some church when it's advantageous to do so. But in the culture, as in the first century, in the time of, of uh, and this, this is true, by the way, in certain parts of the world, even now, but not here in our culture, not here in our nation. Uh, it's still, uh, we still have this kind of freedom. But if it were, if a person knew that there would be serious consequences for identifying with Christ and identifying with the church and identifying as a Christian, you could be sure that they're going to be sincere if they go ahead and make that decision. And so Paul says, you, re you welcome the word in, in affliction. And so the manner with which they received the word, and not only that, but the results of their receiving the word also is indicated for from you sounded out. You were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia and from you sounded out in, uh, in every place your faith to Godward. In other words, it produced an example. You know, it's quite interesting. We all want to, 
we all want to uh, believe and think that uh, Christ ought to be our example. But you find Paul making a statement about he became an example. You see, the, only, the first impression that some people get of Jesus is a believer in Jesus. And these Thessalonian young believers that Paul is thanking God for because he has some assurance of their salvation is that they became examples that other people could follow with reference to coming to Christ. And so he said, you became examples, you became types for others in the, in the Macedonian uh, world. And then they not only received the word, but they spread the word. The second reason why Paul is giving thanks for the Thessalonians and his assurance, why he, he could have assurance, the, the fact that he, the, the response of the believers, they received the word, but they spread the word. In verse uh, 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad. Here's something interesting. So that we need not to speak anything. I can imagine when Paul went down to Berea after Thessalonica, let me tell you what took place at Thessalonica. Well, you don't have to tell us. We've already heard about that. The word has already been spread. Now, there's some question as to what this, 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 from you sounded out the word, it's like it became a sounding board. Whether, whether their lives became a sounding board through which others received and heard about the word, or whether the Thessalonians themselves spoke the word and it echoed from them. Regardless how how we uh, receive this or how we understand this, still they spread the word and that gave Paul assurance that they had really been saved. And then there's a third reason about the response of the, of the uh, believers or the Thessalonians that gave Paul assurance. They manifested true conversion. Now in verses 9 and 10, which I get these ideas. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now in those two verses, there are two actions that express conversion. Christian conversion have two, has two elements to it. Repentance and faith. There are those who argue as to which one of these comes first. Faith or repentance. Well, they're like two sides of the same coin. But both elements are necessary to have true Christian conversion. Now, neither re word repent or believe is found in these two verses, but the action is there. For example, repentance is stated in verse 9, For they themselves show us of what manner of entering in we had unto you, how that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Repentance is a turning. It's a turning from something 
to something. Actually, I might say it's a turning from something to someone. It's a turning from our sins and turning to God. That's repentance. Always has to do with a turning. And then the word faith or the idea of faith is found in verse 10. And to wait for His Son. This indicates that they had trusted and believed in Jesus as being the Son of God. And so, faith and repentance. And by the way, both of these actions themselves have three elements to it. Repentance has an intellectual element. Repentance has an emotional element. And repentance has a volitional element. Now, the intellectual element is this. You know that you're a sinner. You just agree with God that you're a sinner. And the emotional element is that there's a genuine sorrow in your heart that you've sinned against the Holy God. And the volitional element is a willingness to turn from that life to God. Faith has both of these, all three of these elements. Faith has an intellectual element. The intellectual element, you have to agree in your mind the truthfulness of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You've got to intellectually agree with those facts. But you can intellectually agree with those facts and still not have genuine faith. Genuine faith has an emotional element. It is an inward trust of the importance of this. You can believe in your mind all the facts of American history. You can believe that uh, the, the story of George Washington crossing the Delaware River, uh, that don't make any difference in your life. Uh, and, 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 and a person can have that kind of intellectual faith about Jesus. They can agree that the Bible is true and still not have genuine Christian faith. Faith has an emotional element. It's seeing the significance of those events that you agree in your mind are true and then trusting that and that's the volitional element actually trusting in that to save you someone has compared those elements to faith with a man uh, stranded on the island and he sees a boat in his vision and he agrees in his mind that that's a true boat that's not a hallucination it's not a mirage it's a true boat but then he begins to think, now that boat is sufficient for my deliverance from this island. That's the emotional element of faith. But then the boat gets near the final element, will he get in it? That's the volitional element, actually stepping in the boat. And so what Paul perceived in these, uh, in these Thessalonians in their a profession of faith, he saw genuine Christian conversion which consisted of repentance and faith. Well, again, I close by asking the question since we're think, dealing with Thanksgiving. Again, do you know of someone for whom you ought to give thanks because they have given you reasonable assurance that they really are genuinely Christian? But the fact that they receive the word, they do their best to spread the word, and they've given evidence of a true converted conversion experience. And so 
Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonians and what he centers on are his people. And so I hope you will give thanks to God for your friends, for your family, but mainly think in terms of the spiritual aspect of their lives. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m., as well as streaming live on Sunday mornings at 10.45. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.